Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. We're going to talk today about hallucinations and delusions, which come with many types of dementia. Um, you know, personally, I've seen it myself. Um, it's very hard um, when you have a, a loved one, a family member, or when you're caring for someone and they're ex um, experiencing any type of hallucinations. So we thought today what we would do is um, hear from both a doctor and a patient to talk about um, their experience, um, both treating hallucinations and also um, their story of living with them. So please join me and welcoming Erin. Um, um, she is Dr. Erin Foff um, of Acadia Pharmaceuticals. Um, she um, works for the company that is developing um, a treatment, a drug that is right now under FDA uh, review to treat um, hallucinations related to dementia. And also we have with us Chris Schwilk, who is um, a person who has been diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. Lewy body is also uh, one of the dementias where hallucinations are quite characteristic um, of, of the dementia. Erin, um, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be with you. So I think what I want to do first is start with you, Chris. Um, and, you know, I, we were talking a little bit about this before we started um, this interview, but, you know, Lewy body is very um, characteristic of hallucinations. It's like maybe one of the first symptoms patients um, um, experience uh, even, you know, before memory loss, yet it's also misdiagnosed. Um, and, uh, you know, we've learned from our community and heard many stories of people being dis uh, who have Lewy body, but were, dis were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So can we hear first what your story is? Um, how were you diagnosed and, and what were some of the earlier symptoms you were experiencing? Sure. Um, I guess my story goes back to about 2014 or 2015. Um, I was a university professor, uh, trained special education teachers, and I could tell in my teaching, my preparation, my grading, that something was off as far back as 2014, 2015. And I mentioned it to my primary care physician, um, who's known me for well, 20, 25 years, and he said, well, he said, you're probably just getting older. He said, but let's send you for an MRI and make sure you don't have Alzheimer's. Well, they sent me for an MRI and I didn't have Alzheimer's. So I'm like, cool. Okay. Everything's great. Great. Wonderful. Um, but over the next couple of years, work just kept getting more difficult. And my driving um, was really becoming kind of problematic. Um, not that I was, I was dangerous. In fact, I'm still driving um, with the blessing of my uh, neurologist right now. Um, but I began having just not, not feeling comfortable or, or um, having problems with depth perception, um, seeing things um, like bugs. Um, I remember sitting and playing cards um, with my kids and um, saying, did you just see that big bug run across the table? They said, dad, there was no, what are you talking about? There's no bug, um, um, those kind of things. But in, in 2016, 
my story's complicated in that it's my diagnosis wasn't straight from um, I think I have dementia, um, but I was I had PTSD from um, an event where I'm a scuba instructor, and unfortunately one of my students passed away during a swimming test um, in June of 2016 while I was on sabbatical um, from my my teaching job. And from that, I had um, severe depression, um, which affected my cognition, and I got treatment at University of Pennsylvania for that. But after, after they dealt with the PTSD symptoms, my cognition um, was really, it just wasn't coming back. I couldn't make myself great. I couldn't make myself um, um, plan, and I couldn't answer questions in class. So, so sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to just back up a little bit. Uh, uh, when you said, like, I'm always fascinated in this pre-pre-symptomatic phase, right? It's not mm -hmm. when you realize, wow, something must really be wrong. And then you're, you go to a doctor or a neurologist. It's the time before. And what you said was you noticed something was off. How, how can, can you describe that a little bit more? Is it, was it your concentration? Was it that you were starting to see, you know, experience hallucinations early in hindsight? How would you describe that? Yeah. Um, my neurologist, um, I have, I have the advantage of being in a biomarker study. So I've got one of the best neurologists on the, um, you know, on the planet, I think, um, down at, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson hospital rather. Um, and she says that for people who like me, who have a PhD and, um, are in fields that are cognitively demanding, we tend to notice when things are off maybe sooner than some people who don't have that same level of high cognition requirements. So for me, it was that I couldn't answer questions quickly or, um, I have a, my students always said, I, I seem like a, um, like a Google search engine that I could give them a, a website, you know, dating back to anything in any field related to anything that had to do with disabilities for children. And I couldn't do that anymore. Um, those were the things I took my students to Washington, D.C. to go visit Gallaudet University. And about six months later, I was teaching students in the um, some of them were in this, the same class that I took. And they said, remember when you got that ticket when we drove into Washington, D.C.? And I'm like, no, my God, I do not remember that I got a ticket. I got a ticket. And they said, well, you didn't actually get pulled over. It was one of those flashy tickets, you know, where um, a photo ticket um, ticket for going um, through a stop sign or something like that. I don't remember. Right. right. I have no idea what they were even talking about. And um, um I guess I did. I guess I paid it, but I don't. I don't remember it. Those kind of things of, of just missing, just missing out on 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 pieces of my life that were just gone that I couldn't. I couldn't grab. I couldn't recall. I couldn't get back. Even uh, people say, "Well, you did this." I'm like, "You can tell me I did it. I just I believe you. I just don't remember doing it or or having." that happening. When I yeah. was driving for quite a while, I would experience um, big trucks coming into my lane. Oh, that's terrifying. scared me to death. And I thought, sure, that I was done driving at that point. 
So yeah. were you with other people and you would see a tr truck coming at you and would you swerve? I mean, what, what happened? Yeah, it was actually coming in. Like if I'm on the highway, it's them encroaching on my lane. And I would, I would turn very quickly, um, you know, like onto the median or um, into another lane, which scared me and a whole lot of other people around me. And essentially, you know, really scared people that were in the car with me at the time. And had you been diagnosed with Lewy body at that time? I had not. It was right before my diagnosis. So, um, and Lewy body is characteristically um, recognizable because the hallucinations tend to come first. So in, in hindsight, do you think you were having hallucinations before you knew what hallucin, you know, it was, it was, you had dementia? Yeah. Um, one night I saw um, a great big bullfrog jump across my lawn um, in November very cold outside. And I'm like, okay, this does not compute. Bullfrogs are not out right now. I don't, I don't live near a pond. I, there should be not, there should not be a bullfrog in my backyard. Um, what it was, was my dog had gotten her leash stuck underneath a brick that supported my air conditioner, pulled the brick out and the brick bounced across the yard. And I thought it was a bullfrog. Wow. Those kind of things happen to me a lot where I see something but it's not what I think it is. Yeah. And I, I'm getting better at having the perspective of saying that doesn't make sense. That's not what I think it is, but sometimes still, you know, I don't know what I don't know. Sometimes yeah. I don't know if, if what I'm seeing is, is hallucination or, or, or whether it's real. Um, we have a couple of people asking Chris about whether you hallucinate more later in the day um, and someone else saying, um, would you hallucinate more during, during sundowners? You know, is it common? Um, they kind of come out more at nighttime. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still very early in the disease process. Um, uh, my doctor would describe my, um, where I am as kind of prodromal, which is a word I didn't know before. Um, that is, um, I've been diagnosed very early through, um, by being part of this, um, biomarker study i had a dat scan and they can look at me and say yeah you you consider the your biomarkers are consistent with louis and so we can diagnose you with louis um i'm not aware that i sundown um but i do know that when i'm tired i can't distinguish things as clearly as when i'm um when i'm fresh right so, um, and I think that for some delusions that, you know, just minor delusions that I may have, I think that the same is true. I don't, I don't think I have any, you know, right. family members may disagree, but I don't think I have any persistent delusions. Right, now. right. Well, I mean, and often they're not, I mean, I can see it with my own mom, you know, sometimes she's having, she thinks people have broken into the house and, you know, but yet um it sometimes she doesn't do that and, and sometimes it's like every day you know we have these episodes so, and talk to us a little bit about the pattern of hallucinations and delusions with dementia Aaron um you know no rhyme or reason again or do we know there if there's triggers so the great question so first of all that there may be differences in how hallucinations and delusions present depending on the underlying cause of dementia so you've already mentioned one example of that so for in the example you've given with dementia with Lewy bodies 
hallucinations are very common and in fact can often precede the cognitive problems. That is very different than with other dementing illnesses like Alzheimer's disease. For the most part in Alzheimer's, hallucinations and delusions tend to occur later in the disease course. And in fact, delusions are a bit more common than hallucinations in the majority of Alzheimer's patients. So the pattern of the hallucinations and delusions may actually give a little bit of a diagnostic clue. Can't rely too much on that. Um, Can you just define for us the difference, like hallucination versus delusion? What is the difference? That's a, that's, that's great. So hallucinations are when somebody is seeing, hearing, smelling, or otherwise sensing something that isn't really there. So they may taste something that they're actually, there's nothing in their mouth to taste, um, see or hear things, those are the common ones. A delusion is a fixed, what we, what the common definition is a fixed false belief. It's when someone is believing something that is not true, no matter how much evidence you present to the contrary. So this may be something along the lines of someone is stealing from me, or my spouse is being unfaithful. So, um, and they can get a little bit muddled because sometimes if somebody is really fixed on believing that their hallucination is real, it can be hard to decide, is that a hallucination and a delusion or just a hallucination? Um, the key is that you have to ask. You know, one of, one of the difficult things is that these are tough symptoms to talk about and they don't often get discussed in a clinical setting. What part of our brain makes us hallucinate? Is it like, yeah, I mean, we know the hippocampus is responsible for memory. Is there a hallucination delusion component or? <laughs> there is, these are complicated pathways. The, the back part or the occipital part of our brain is kind of responsible for integrating our visual understanding of the world. So taking those images that our eyes see and, and turning them into an interpretation. So the type of thing that Chris was talking about where the, the car looked as appeared as though it was coming too close into his lane, that kind of misunderstanding of the visual perception is really integrated in that back part of the brain. Delusions are more complex because there's because just even in the nature of the complexity of how they're ingrained into the more of the prefrontal cortex and, and other parts of the brain mechanism. So we were talking about too the fact that I know, you know, a lot of people who suffer from delusions or hallucinations are treated with antipsychotics or antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And what's remarkable to me is none of these medications are made for people with dementia, yet they're prescribed because there's really just nothing else out there. So Talk to us a little bit about um, the drug that Acadia, where, where you work, um, the pharmaceutical that you work are, is now um, wanting to release onto the market for dementia. It's previously been used, I think, for Parkinson's, but now um, you're asking the FDA to consider it for, for dementia. That's right. So you're dead on that all of the drugs that exist out there right now in the antipsychotic category were really developed for earlier onset psychotic syndromes like schizophrenia. And in fact, they carry some pretty serious and significant safety liabilities in an elderly population. And that's partly why there hasn't really ever been a great demonstration of benefit and risk that would allow that calculation to mean that those drugs are approved and safe for use in elderly patients. Although in essence, you have to work with what you have and that's what many the choices many clinicians have to make. 
Acadia has developed pimavanserin as the name of the drug, and it was really tailor-made initially for Parkinson's patients because it, um, it hits a chemical pathway in the brain that doesn't affect motor symptoms. And that makes it particularly useful in a Parkinson's population when you already have motor problems. And many of the other antipsychotics have this liability of causing movement problems. What we noticed when we studied pimavanserin in Parkinson's patients was that the, the Parkinson's patients who also had Parkinson's-related dementia did very well on the drug in terms of their response of their hallucinations and delusions. And that clued us in that maybe the drug would really work in best, work very well in a broader dementia population. And that's what we've been studying. So Chris, have you taken any medications for the hallucinations or delusions that you experience? Well, I don't know if they're, if it's specifically um, for that. Um, I, I take rivastigmine. I have, I have 4.6 rivastigmine patch. Um, and I, I seem to do better now with that. I, I feel like I've gotten time back. Um, and as I say, I, I'm still driving. My, my neurologist sent me for a, um, a driving evaluation at the Moss Rehabilitation Clinic in, in Philadelphia, which I passed. The examiner still wanted to restrict me, and I said, well, under, you know, give me some evidence here. I'm a data kind of guy. You know? But um, so right now I'm, I'm still driving. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's helped. Um, but it's, who knows, yeah. you know? <laughs> too many variables. Aaron, how far off are we? I mean, the, it's under FDA review. What does that mean? I mean, how long would we have to wait? And are you, is it under clinical trial in, um, people with dementia? So we completed our clinical trial program, um, that was being used to support the application to the FDA about a year ago now, um, and then packaged everything up and gave it to the FDA. Their review has a, right now, an actionable date of April 3rd, 2020. Um, that's always subject to change. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, but, you know, it is, and the FDA does recognize that the drug has breakthrough therapy designation. So the recognition is, is there that there is a really high unmet need because there is nothing approved in this patient population. So uh, we do expect to hear um, about the outcome of that review in April. Of 2021. As a, as I know that you've studied this topic and um, you know you've been in academia as well as in, uh, working for pharma, but um, are there strategies like for for those of us who don't have access to the medicine and you know we wait wait and see if it may work? It's still some months off. Um, for those of us who don't have access, what is your advice? Are there strategies to overcome hallucinations and delusions without taking a pill? So yes, potentially. So, so let me walk you through that a little bit. So it should always be in the right clinical situation. There should always be an attempt 
to try to address hallucinations and delusions through non-pharmacologic means. And really that, and that's even part of the guidelines to always try things like diversion techniques or um, you know, non, non-pharmacologic behavioral interventions. And there are lots of good resources about where caregivers and, and patients can go to identify and be trained on some of those techniques. And in fact, we use them in our trial too, to, to see if we could identify patients for example, who might not need pharmacologic intervention. And then in for those patients who, who really don't respond to that kind of intervention, um, to Chris's point, there are other medications out there that may not particularly erase or abolish the hallucinations and delusions, but might address some of the downstream manifestations um, of those um, of those symptoms. So Chris mentioned one of them, which is rivastigmine, which is a class of medications called the cholinesterase inhibitors. This boosts the levels of acetylcholine in the brain and for reasons we don't fully understand, is somewhat helpful and can be somewhat helpful in these symptoms. And many of our patients are already on those medications. Really for those patients for whom none of those interventions work or for whom the hallucinations and delusions are dangerous or really um, uh, you know, distressing, um, there, there's really a need for something else. And that's when we get ourselves in these choices of having to, to reach for what's there. Chris, have you um, adopted any strategies to help you cope when you're having a hallucination? Um, what do you do? Um, one of the things that I have done since I was diagnosed is I've gotten very into meditation and mindfulness training. So I ask myself when I see something, I, said, you know, I just try to be mindful of it. Um, you know, what am I experiencing right now? Does ask myself, does this fit with what should be going on around me? Kind of like the the bullfrog thing. Bullfrogs aren't around my neighborhood and there aren't out, out in November. So um, that's the best thing that has worked for me is just, just being mindful. And um, meditation has helped me deal with that um, to train myself to be more mindful and also to just deal with life and all that this Louis stuff is bringing me. So um, do you often have someone at home you can say, is this true? Is this really happening? I do. Um, yeah, my, my life's a mess right now. And if you, you know, if we want to do the soap opera that I could, but um, I, I do have, um, I do have people around me who can, um, that I bounce stuff off of and say, does this, does this make sense or doesn't it make sense? I mean, the thing that's different about Chris is he, he seems quite rational about his hallucinations, right? I mean, I if I told my mom she was hallucinating and there was not anyone else in the house, she would get really upset with me because she's sure that there is, right? So it, that's interesting in itself um, in terms of the level. So Aaron, what do you have to say about that? That you hit on one of the key features here. Sometimes patients are aware and sometimes patients are not. And Lewy body patients, particularly early in their disease like Chris, are often aware, and so are Parkinson's patients, often very aware or can be told and can accept that what they're seeing or experiencing is not real. Um, in, in situations, particularly with Alzheimer's disease, where the onset of these features is later when the dementia itself is more severe, Patients are often agnostic and unaware of their symptoms. And in fact, trying to convince them otherwise of the lack of reality 
of their experience can be in itself distressing. Mm -hmm. And so the techniques to approach a patient with these symptoms are very different depending on whether or not a patient is or is not aware. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, Chris sounds very rational about his hallucinations. I, I must for say. now, for now, dial back in five years and we'll see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, so why do you think Aaron that pharma hasn't addressed this sooner? I'm just, I mean, I, I would think, you know, we don't have a cure right now, but this would be one of the top priorities because it seems so common. Right. Uh, it's a, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, it's it's wrapped up in a lot of mixed pieces, and maybe a few of them are that the field has been very focused, and I think with good reason for a long time, on trying to attack the disease. You know, a lot of money and time and effort has been um, focused on disease modification and trying to find a cure. And in, inadvertently, we have sort of allowed some of the symptomatic, the care part, not the cure part, slide a little bit to the wayside. Um, and I think there's really been a reawakening in the last five to seven years that that care part, that you know, addressing these things that really impact quality of life, that really impact whether a patient stays home or goes into a nursing home, those have become really critical. Um, and and there's been there have been some advances I think in how to approach the problem. For example, in in the trial that we ran, we we made the decision to bring all dementia patients in as opposed to just patients, for example, with Alzheimer's disease, to really get a, a sense of the real world utility of of the medication. In general, central nervous system clinical trials do not have a very high success rate. And I, as we're getting better at diagnosis and biomarkers and imaging, I think that will shift and change. But we're just at the beginning of all of that, really. Is is there a dementia that doesn't include hallucinations? It's just not, doesn't happen? Or is it, it does it have, occur in, in all dementias? There are definitely dementias in which hallucinations and delusions are very, very uncommon. Um, one example would be frontotemporal dementia. This is a rare dementia that tends to afflict patients who are younger. It's a very hot, strong behavioral component. And really, you know, somewhere along the lines of two to 10% of patients with frontotemporal dementia will get hallucinations and delusions. That's dramatically different than Lewy body where 70 or 80% of patients will experience hallucinations and delusions. So um, dementia, as you know, um, it can, it, there are so many causes, alcoholism, traumatic brain injury. And, and so the, the rate and frequency of these symptoms can be lower in some kinds than others, but you'd find a case in any dementia, hallucinations and delusions at some point in the literature, it's hard to escape it. So we were talking earlier that, you know, Parkinson's is closely, probably more closely related to, to uh, Lewy body than it is to any other dementia. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's right. They're on, they're really on a spectrum with one another that is unique in the sense that the distinction between them clinically is really what started first. If the motor symptoms started first, you have Parkinson's disease. Um, I'm simplifying a bit, but it's pretty close. If the cognitive and neuropsychiatric symptoms started first, then you have you have dementia with Lewy bodies. Otherwise, they're they're um, you know pretty much on the same spectrum. Right. So, Chris, do you feel that your symptoms? I mean, you said you were diagnosed maybe a year and a half ago. Um, when it comes to hallucinations and delusions. Are they getting worse? Are they about the same? Um, 
at this point, unless I'm delusional, um, I don't think that they're, <laughs> I don't think they're getting worse at this point. I'm, um, I seem to be on a plateau for the last eight to 12 months for which I'm very grateful. Um, for, for right now, I, I don't think that they're getting worse. And there's a good question coming in saying, how do we approach our loved one who doesn't believe they're having hallucinations? That's a tough one. You know, what I used to tell my patients, so I'll just tell you what I tell them, because there's no one size fits all for any particular loved one patient partnership. Um, I used to tell my patients that if there was no harm in their belief to themselves or to anyone else, then not, not to try to change their mind about the event. So believing that they've seen someone who has passed away, uh, those sorts of things, you let them go because it's, it, there's really no benefit to, to trying to correct the, the, the misbelief. For something that is harmful, so for example, if someone firmly believes that they've already taken their medication but they haven't and you need them to take their medication, then that is the time to sort of employ these other techniques, distract from the acute situation, leave it behind for a few minutes, trying to find other ways to approach during a calmer time. There's these techniques, but only really getting down into that when it's necessary and letting the rest go. Right. And, you know, and I, I, I like your point too, like these strategies, try them first. Not everyone needs medication. I mean, you know, hallucinations are common and it doesn't mean you need to necessarily be on the medication. But I think what you were implying, Aaron, is when it gets really bad and, it, and you're putting yourself or others in danger, that's, that's time to consider. Is that right? That's right. There's a lot. There's just one caveat to that. There's a lot we don't know. So let me maybe just add a little bit of color to that. We know that patients with hallucinations and delusions, even when they're not severe, have a faster decline in cognition. They have a faster transition to nursing home. They actually have higher morbidity and mortality all around. And so, you know, there needs to be a focus of, of research into whether treating the symptoms when they're earlier is beneficial to preventing some of those outcomes. And maybe just one other little caveat, it can be really easy to identify when a hallucination or delusion is outrightly harmful. But sometimes people miss the actual harm of a minor delusion and hallucination. If someone believes that their food is tainted, they may not eat as much or at all. And that might just seem like a missed meal because the family member doesn't realize that the reason the person's not eating is because they believe something's wrong with their food. So I, I, you know, we often, we should be having these conversations more frequently when we're meeting with our doctor so that then we can delve deeper into what might be some of the reasons why someone is acting a certain way and make sure there's not an indolent symptom there that should be treated. We were um, discussing Dawn Ken earlier, who was um, uh, recently on Being Patient and had to see seven neurologists before he was diagnosed with Lewy body because his hallucination was he would eat something and what was salty tasted sweet and what sweet was tasted salty. Now, to be honest, I mean, a lot of neurologists couldn't identify that as a hallucination. 
That's right. That would be a hard one, I think, for most non-specialists. And um, and so, you know, part of the message is educating everyone. It's not just about educating your viewers and the patients and the caregivers. It's really about educating the providers. More than half of patients with dementia are not seen in a specialist environment. They're seen in primary care, and that's the only person they'll ever see. And primary care docs have to be well-versed in heart disease and diabetes, and now we're giving them an extra thing to do. So we really need to arm them with the, the tools to understand this and make sure that they also know when a patient with dementia shows up with these symptoms, we're really obligated to make sure there isn't something else going on. Let's make sure there's not a urinary tract infection or some other medical condition that's causing the symptoms, but ask about them. And then once we've ruled out those things, decide with the patient, with the caregiver, how to proceed with treatment or with some other approach. And then it's always tricky because a lot of times it's mixed dementias, right? You have more than one dementia, but that's a topic for another, <laughs> another talk, I'm afraid. Um, Chris, for you, was it really hard for you to get diagnosed with Lewy body? I mean, it seems like you were exhibiting a lot of the Alzheimer's symptoms, you know, with the memory loss earlier. Mm -hmm. um, my story is very different than most. Um, I, I had the advantage of... Um, of living very close to a major medical center. Um, and when I went to the, it was the Hershey Medical Center in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, and the neurologist that, that talked to me there um, basically advised me at that time, and it's not the case anymore, but, but to find a different place because they didn't have a cognitive neuro, a, a cognitive neurologist. And, and I was grateful to her for, for that honesty. Um, what took the longest for me was distinguishing between what was depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress syndrome and what was Lewy body dementia. And I, I don't know that it's possible to, to necessarily tease that out, but we know that there's a lot of comorbidity between those, those things. Um, that is, they exist one, um, they often exist together um, my depression, my anxiety were debilitating. I ended up in a, um, out in Seattle at a, um, outpatient or a, what do they call them? Partial hospitalization program. And it was there that the psychiatrist there said, I don't think this is PTSD. I think it is depression. I think it's anxiety, but I think you got a whole lot more going on than that. And that's what, where I got the referral to see a neurologist. Um, I drug my feet on it for a while. I didn't want to know. Um, but I, my story is, is, is really atypical in, in that, in that I got a quick diagnosis from the time that, that I actually saw a neurologist to the time that I got a diagnosis of Lewy body was under three months. And that's unheard of. Wow. That's probably the fastest I've ever heard. Actually, <laughs> you know, we, we've spoken to people. It's taken five years, right? Yeah. A yeah. diagnosis. Well, I want to say thank you both so much. Um, and I'm glad this is being addressed. It's a really hard topic for a lot of us who are facing dementia, whether you are the person diagnosed or a family member. Um, you know, it's it, it, it can be very, very, um, very problematic um, for everyone um, to see a loved one go through this. Um, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And Erin, we wish you all the luck. And please let us know uh, when and if you get the um, FDA approval. We hope that there's there's something to help people uh, really in need. Thank you, Deborah. Thanks so much. Thanks, right. everyone. Thank you. Thank you for.
involving me in this today. It's really been neat. So if you missed any of this interview, please go to our site, beingpatient.com. You also can sign up for our newsletter. We will let you know about upcoming talks. I always love to hear from everyone about what you want to hear about. So please do write us. We really take to heart um, and consideration the topics you want to know about. Please write us at info at beingpatient.com. We can post that um, in this, um, in the chat of, of this talk. Thanks very much for watching and we look forward to next time.